Impaired insight into a person's mental illness is common among individuals with severe and persistent mental illness. The official name of this lack of insight is anosognosia, which can lead to more severe symptoms and a greater impairment in functioning. And one of the reasons for this is because if a person is not aware they're ill, they will resist or even completely avoid treatment. Despite the importance of insight as a predictor of outcomes, there's been little research that looks at the effects of early intervention services on improving the insight of individuals living with psychosis. But today, we get to hear about some of that research and its long-reaching impact. Meet Dr. Nicole DeTori. Nicole is the Director of Research with the Research, Resilience, and Prevention Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and she's also the Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School. Pretty impressive. She has been looking at FEP, which is First Episode Psychosis, and how it can be a unique opportunity for intervention and potentially improving the long-term trajectory of someone living with schizophrenia. Dr. DeTori, we are absolutely thrilled to have you here. Welcome to Look Again. Thanks for having me. And now, Nicole, before we get into our discussion, I just want to remind our audience that we have discussed anosognosia in a previous episode. So if you'd like more information, check out Season 2, Episode 2, and the episode is called Hidden in Plain Sight. Okay, Dr. DeTori. Now, I understand the research that you and your colleagues have been doing has been used in a program called Navigate. Could you please tell us more about this program and its key principles for early intervention in psychosis? The Navigate program was developed in the U.S. amongst multiple psychologists and psychiatrists, and their goal was really to create kind of like everything in the kitchen sink, everything they think that could possibly be beneficial to those kind of recently experiencing psychosis. And this was done across a huge uh, National Institute of Mental Health of the U.S., project that looked at, I believe it was in 36 sites. They randomized some sites to not get this intervention, just kind of have treatment as usual, and the others were to get Navigate. It was a long project. It went for about four years, and the goal was really to see if this Navigate intervention can be beneficial to to folks um, above what is already happening, the treatment as usual. Okay, now let's talk about the why. Obviously, Navigate is focused on treating psychosis as early as possible. Mm -hmm. Why? And what are those benefits of doing that? Yeah, there's been a lot of research, probably 30 years of research that shows that early intervention in psychosis is, is really quite beneficial. The goal is to kind of get someone as quickly as they start developing symptoms. So really trying to reduce this duration of untreated psychosis with the expectation that those who experience psychosis without intervention will just have worse effects. If you think about the amount of time that someone's psychotic, it kind of reduces their ability to function. They may have lost jobs. They may be unenrolled from school. They might be having some conflict interpersonally. So the idea that as soon as we can get intervention on board, hopefully we can kind of maintain all that is there for that individual before some of that falls away. So really hoping that if we can get someone into intervention early, that there might be short-term and long-term effects for that individual. And what is the length of time or that so-called magic window when symptoms are more responsive to that treatment? Ideally, I would say we want to get someone in right as they're beginning to experience psychosis. I would love to get someone into treatment within the first six months, but it's it's a lot. You know, people are trying to figure out 
is this substance use? Is this just a weird passing kind of thing? What do I make of this? Mm -hmm. Families don't really know what to do with it. So it can take someone quite some time to get in. I think in the Navigate, we saw that folks had an average of 72 or 74 weeks before they were admitted into treatment. Um, And that being kind of like a median number. So we're seeing a lot of people, it's like a year and a half before they're getting into treatment. Most first episode programs are trying to get someone within the first two years. But I think ideally, as soon as you can get someone in, the better. Mm-hmm. And I know Navigate is an evidence-based treatment program that focuses on recovery with that first episode of psychosis. But as we know, when it comes to mental illness, the term recovery can mean very different things. So for some, it means no longer having the symptoms, while for mm-hmm. others, it means managing their symptoms to the best of their ability. I have to be honest. I worry about using the term recovery because it can give that false impression that an illness like schizophrenia can be cured. So how do you define recovery? Yeah, I love that question. I mean, for me, recovery is an essential part of just mental health treatment in general. And I think of recovery within a mental illness, not recovery from a mental illness. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I didn't come up with it. Someone else much smarter did. And I love the idea of recovery because it can be so tailored to a person. It's recovery for that person. What does that look like? For some people, recovery is solely focused on symptoms. But I would say for the vast majority of people, recovery is just about living your life. And hopefully you're not talking about symptoms all that much. We all know that schizophrenia is a severe and persistent mental illness. So if somebody, a family member, is seeing their loved one acting differently or an individual is feeling differently, let's talk about some of those symptoms that someone may see or experience. Yeah, so typically we're thinking of what we call positive symptoms. So I like to say they're they're symptoms that have been added on. So things like hearing something that might not be there, hearing a voice, but it doesn't necessarily have to be as concrete as a voice, especially in those early days Sometimes it's hearing a person's name being called. Sometimes it's just hearing some different noises that they can't really make sense of that don't have a voice quality, but it does have an external quality. It feels like it's coming from outside of their body. They would turn to look at it, that kind of thing. And hallucinations, having an experience, a sensory experience can be across all senses. Mm -hmm. So touch, smell, taste, sight, sound. And then we're also thinking about delusions, a fixed false belief that a person's experiencing. So you might notice an individual starts getting pretty preoccupied with something that maybe they hadn't been before. They want to learn a lot more about it. They start talking a lot more about it. And it may be something that doesn't entirely make sense to others. I think another thing that can be challenging, especially in those early days, though, is the person doesn't have to entirely believe it. They may not be 100% convinced of this. It could just be 50%, but they feel preoccupied by it. Maybe it's causing some distress. So those are things we usually see kind of added, maybe some disorganization. Maybe the person just isn't as clear in their speech as they used to be. Maybe they kind of report that they're feeling a little confused or just they kind of lose track of things. They can't find a word they're looking for. And then we see things like negative symptoms, so things that have been taken away. We see a reduction in motivation. We see a reduction in wanting to be with other people. We see a reduction in even how much someone's speaking and kind of engaging, how much a person is showing affect, kind of 
showing how they think or feel on their face, their voice tone. You just kind of notice everything is is just a bit brought down for the person. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this earlier, the importance of involving family and loved ones. How does Navigate incorporate family support? And what are your thoughts on ways that we can continue to increase the emphasis on that family-centered care, which is so important? So important. I think having been a clinician, I think it's one of the most important predictors of how well a person does. When you think about individuals who are initially experiencing psychosis, it's teens and 20s. A lot of those Mm -hmm. folks are still living at home, especially nowadays, you know? They're home, they're with their parents, they're with their siblings, they're with their friends. Um, And so they really have, if you think about developmentally, when a person has the most amount of humans with them, it is really in this like adolescent young adult stage. They could be living in college with like five roommates. They could be living at home with mom and dad and siblings. So there's tons of people there. And those people are enormous resources, not only for helping determine that something new is happening, but also in terms of kind of cultivating a space where that person can get treatment, that person can understand what's happening and really, you know, themselves want to engage in treatment. Navigate does a really nice job of having a family component. So they have actually family therapy that is dedicated to having the family in whatever system that is, whether it's a mom, a dad, it's a grandma, it's a foster parent, Mm -hmm. it's just loved ones. Having those folks come in and really talk with the person experiencing psychosis along with a provider to understand psychoeducation, what is some of this stuff, how do I know what's going on, at what point do we need intervention, what are some warning signs, what will this look like, Um, but then also just doing some communication skills, ensuring that the person experiencing psychosis feels heard, feels validated, feels supported, And so I think Navigate does a really nice job of pairing that together with individual treatment as well. Now, what advice do you have for parents? You know, we talked about anosognosia earlier, Mm -hmm. so the individual may not recognize they, in fact, have a brain disease. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice as a clinician and a researcher for family members who are struggling with their loved one experiencing anosognosia? Yeah, I, I think it's so tough. I mean, when we think about anosognosia, the the kind of unawareness of having a mental illness, we're really talking about usually about 50% of people experiencing psychosis. And that can wax and wane. Typically, what I try to say is I want a family to be supportive. I want a family to be the place that this individual can go to for support and for validation. That might not always be pushing that person to identify as having a mental illness. I think that can be a job for a clinician, but I want usually the family members to just be at place of love. Okay, I'm going to keep chatting with Dr. Nicole DeTore, but right now we have to share some observations about psychosis from people who have lived with it and around it. He doesn't believe he has a mental illness. He experiences anastagnosia, so he truly believes in his mind he is not sick. So that's kind of a unique challenge to handle. When I first had depression in 95 and my doctor just was like, you're just depressed, you just need antidepressants. And just saying you're in a mood kind of thing. Not being heard and not being really looked at in a holistic type of, let's look at all the factors here, not just the depression. But you can't just treat it singularly. You, you have to treat it and look at the whole picture. I don't think you can just throw a pill at someone and say, take this and you'll be fine. Call me in a week. That's ridiculous. And that's what I felt that the doctor that I saw 
in Calgary when I first was depressed. He missed the boat entirely, and then my life unraveled. I don't know if that was really her when she was that ill. And that's what I try to say. I try to think that she didn't know her brain was hijacked at the time. It helps me get through, like knowing that my mom's brain was hijacked and that wasn't really her. When she did pull a knife on people, on the paramedics that time. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast about mental illness brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and our BC partner organizations. I'm Phaedra Aldridge, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicole DeTori in Boston about the long-term impacts of anosognosia, or lack of insight, into illnesses like schizophrenia, as well as the impact of early intervention programs. So Nicole, early intervention is not new to British Columbia. We've been talking about early intervention since around 2000, so over the last couple of decades, through our Early Psychosis Intervention Program, otherwise known as EPI. And we've been looking at the importance of getting early and appropriate treatment. So I'm curious, what is the link between the Navigate Program and EPI? EpiNet is a collection of kind of first episode programs where they're really doing a lot nationally and internationally to understand how all these first episode programs are working and what people are doing and what are some of the commonalities that we're seeing and and really trying to use that as a way to identify how beneficial and effective are these programs. Um, and many EpiNet centers use the Navigate program. The Navigate program is is really, it's evidence-based. It was a large study of 404 individuals with early psychosis And you had mentioned earlier that Navigate has been widely adopted. So let's talk a little more about its geographical reach. Yeah, uh, geographically, it's all across the U.S. and some of Canada. I think there's some areas of the world that have been doing first episode early psychosis work for years prior to the U.S., like Australia. There's a lot done in Europe that is really just amazing. There's also this difference between you all and the U.S. <laughs> in terms of having universal health care. Mm-hmm. So for us in the U.S., it's a large ingredient in terms of whether or not someone can get care, what level of care they can get, how long they can get that care, and honestly, kind of how good that care is sometimes. Yeah. So in the U.S., the the lack of insurance is, is a real barrier. And now... You spoke earlier about the time-limited nature of Navigate, which is a two-year program. So what happens then after that two-year mark? Uh, Excellent question. After the two years, those folks get referred to whatever provider is within their insurance or within their kind of area of treatment. For many folks with severe mental illness, they end up going to community mental health programs. So those are programs that take either the uninsured or those who have an insurance that's allowed through the government. It means a very severe drop in the quantity of services that they're getting. So they go from maybe having weekly care, at least monthly care, to having something that could be just medication management every three months, a brief 15-minute call kind of thing. So there really is an enormous step down for the vast majority of first episode folks. But I would like to see everyone with a severe mental illness obtaining some sort of psychotherapy, some sort of skills-based psychotherapy, and also receive some sort of employment or education services to support them in their recovery goals, kind of outside of just mental illness stuff. Mm -hmm. We're going to back up a bit. You had said that there was over 400 participants. So can you just Mm -hmm. describe that research and 
what happened once you were able to get those people into that research project? Yeah. So across the U.S., each site was told if they were going to be treatment as usual or if they were getting the Navigate intervention. And those who got treatment as usual just did exactly that. They kept with their usual treatment. They didn't change anything, except we did a whole bunch of assessments on those folks to see kind of how they were faring, how they were doing, what was going on with them, just to kind of track progress over time. Those same assessments were done with the sites that obtained Navigate. It was done within community mental health centers for most They were trained on individual resiliency training, so really wanting them to offer the full Navigate portfolio. We followed them for two years, some folks were even longer, and tried to look at how people did kind of treatment as usual compared to Navigate across many, many domains of mental health. So the paper that I wrote was really looking at insight. Were we able to see that Navigate increased one's insight into the illness. So the understanding or the acknowledgement that they have Mm -hmm. a mental illness, was Navigate able to increase that more than the folks who just did treatment as usual? And we saw that it did. We saw that Navigate was really quite able to improve one's understanding that they had a mental illness compared to treatment as usual. And why do you think that is, Nicole? My thought is that it has more to do with the individual resilience training. We're talking about folks getting some good psychoeducation. We're talking about folks having their families coming in and getting good psychoeducation. We're talking about a person kind of coming into a system that had quite a bit set up for them. We're really making sure that individuals understand their own illness and can take the steering wheel for themselves for their illness. And I think it helps an individual feel independent and feel like they understand their illness. And so I think there's just quite a bit of scaffolding around it that really helps a person develop that insight. Thank you for that. And now next steps with Navigate. So are there plans to extend the duration of the program to better track that long-term outcomes for participants? Or where are you hoping to see this program go next? Navigate has really taken off. I work in Massachusetts, and we have about 11 to 16 first episode sites across the state. And we're a fairly small state. Out of all of those 11 to 16, I would say the vast majority of them use Navigate as their model for intervention. And that's the same across the full U.S. and other countries as well. Navigate, I think because it's been so thoroughly researched over the last few years, the first publication came out in 2016, and there's now hundreds of publications on the Navigate protocol. It's been really nice to see all of the effects that it has. I think it really, at this point, has been shown to be quite the gold standard for first episode care. And now, Nicole, it is very clear that you are extremely passionate about this field. Very. So what initially inspired you to work in the area of early intervention psychosis, as well as the mental health research in general? Because, yes, you just ooze excitement when you talk about this topic. Yeah, I I love supporting folks with severe mental illnesses. My reason for getting into psychosis was actually one particular individual. I was working in an inpatient hospital in my 20s and ended up meeting a young person. He was in his 20s, this very good-looking, put-together, smart guy. And I was so curious as to how this person ended up on a pretty severe psychiatric unit. And it wasn't until his family came that I realized he was very delusional and had a capgrass delusion, which is a type of delusion where an individual doesn't believe that 
their loved one is really their loved one. He believed mm-hmm. that they were clones of his family. And watching this really amazingly well put together, super smart, high achieving kid just really struggle with this and not be able to understand that this was potentially a delusion, seeing the impact that it had on the parents and how distraught they were. Mm -hmm. I was just overwhelmed with empathy for this individual, for the family. And that really got me started in first episode psychosis. And I've loved it. I mean, it's a really wonderful combination of being able to work with families who are trying Mm -hmm. the best they can, working with individuals who are thrown into such an intense and confusing situation. And I think that's where the first episode part really lured me in. It's a major milestone for a human to get diagnosed with a severe mental illness. And so there's just so much and just wanting this person to live a good life. Yeah. You know, have great relationships, have school or work or whatever they want to do and just get away from the illness model. Focus on living a good, amazing life. Well, we have a lot to thank that young man for because you've done a lot of amazing work. Thank you. But I do have to touch again on the many myths and stereotypes that still surround severe and persistent mental illness. What can we as a society do to try and reduce those misconceptions and many myths that still exist? I think the first and most important thing is just to educate ourselves Severe mental illness can happen to anyone. Yes. And it is not based on what a person looks like. It is not based on anything like that. It can happen to any human. There are many people we know who experience this, and we just don't know it. And we would never have judged them for having this. So really just getting out and educating ourselves that these illnesses have no boundaries. And a lot of times the people who are experiencing these are just unidentifiable from any other human. They're just another person living their life, living a great life, hopefully. And this is just another thing that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. What message would you like to give to a family member or an individual right now who may be feeling changes happening within them or a loved one watching those changes? Yeah, I mean, my, my biggest recommendation would be seek professional help. I think... People assume that they can handle things on their own, but a severe mental illness like schizophrenia, like psychosis, is really a brain illness. If someone broke their leg, they would not think they could heal it at home themselves. They Mm -hmm. would go to a professional. And I would love for us to have the same mentality when it comes to mental health. If something feels wrong, we just go find a doctor. And one final question. I could talk to you for hours, Nicole. I really could. (laughs) Same. Um, Prevention. We've talked a lot about early psychosis and the importance of getting treatment as early and as quickly as possible. Yeah. But we haven't talked about prevention. With an illness such as schizophrenia, there's not a lot you can do to prevent that particular illness. I would say prevention is an untapped place that psychiatry has not really ventured. We do it for diabetes. We do it for cancer. We don't really do very much for psychiatric disorders. There's so many barriers to obtaining early treatment. But our thought is really, why can't we focus on prevention like other physicians in medicine do? We have started at Mass General and a lot of places around the world have started looking at early intervention. 
there's a whole body of research focused on clinical high risk for psychosis. And that has been something that's been going on for many years, really looking at, can we identify those who are at an elevated risk for developing something like schizophrenia? And can we prevent the conversion of them going into experiencing a full psychotic disorder? I think the research in that has been so well done and has been lovely, but our ability to predict that is still like 25, 30%. So we have not figured out the recipe yet. We know some of the ingredients. And at Mass General Hospital, we focus a lot on on adolescents and trying to identify those who are at an elevated risk for a psychiatric disorder and really any psychiatric disorder. The hopes that we can have a trans-diagnostic prevention for any human who could go on to develop anything. And so our program has been really focused on What skills can we harness in these young folks to help them navigate? And so really focusing on mindfulness, focusing on self-compassion, self-support, self-love, a lot of CBT programs, a lot of social programs, and the idea that maybe these skills, though they may not entirely prevent a mental illness, they will certainly be protective and they will allow that person to manage some of these waves a little bit better. Thank you. Like I said, I could talk to you forever, Nicole. I really (laughs) could. could You're just a wealth of information. So it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was lovely to be here. And a huge thanks to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can better understand and change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia. To get our latest episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we will be back with more thought-provoking discussions in our next episode. So thanks for listening and for choosing to be a part of this very important conversation. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.